Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a really interesting new book published by Manchester University Press in 2023 titled Conceptualizing China Through Translation, which has some interesting methodology here for investigating perceptions of China um, by the West mostly, but it's more complicated than that. We'll get into it. Also looking at how translation actually works in multiple directions over multiple time periods um, and what this tells us historically and also in a lot of ways what this helps us understand today. So the book is written by Dr. James St. Andre and I'm very pleased to have him with us on the podcast. James, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you start us off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So I'm originally from uh, Boston, Massachusetts uh, in the US, grew up there. And in uh, college, I was inspired by uh, Professor Merle Goldman at Boston University, where I was an undergraduate, uh, to start studying Chinese. And then I did graduate work at the University of Chicago in comparative literature, so Chinese and English, um, and studied in Taiwan for a couple of years, uh, intensively uh, the language. Then um, partly because two of my advisors in Chicago were famous translators of Chinese novels, um, Anthony Yu translated Journey to the West and David Roy translated The Plum and the Golden Vase. I became interested in translation theory and ran a workshop there on translating East Asia. Then after graduation, I moved around a bit. So I did a postdoctoral fellowship in Taiwan. I worked for six years in Singapore at the National University of Singapore. And then I spent eight years at the University of Manchester in the UK, uh, a joint appointment in Chinese studies and translation. And now I've been in Hong Kong at the Chinese University of Hong Kong uh, Department of Translation for almost 10 years, uh, where I am now head of department and director of the Center for Translation Technology. And as for why this book, actually this came out of a sort of chance occurrence in Manchester. There was a PhD student who was uh, working, a PhD student from who was from China, working with one of my colleagues uh, in translation studies. And I was uh, one of the readers uh, for uh, her thesis, and she used the concept of face in sociolinguistics. Um, And I noted that it was interesting that sociolinguistics had taken this notion of face from Chinese, and she was completely unaware of the fact that the phrase uh, to say face or to lose face in English, which is used in a technical sense in sociolinguistics, actually originally came from Chinese. So this I was a little bit interested in this. In fact, I sort of initially doubted whether I was actually correct about this. So I did a bit of investigation and that investigation turned into an article uh, solely on the concept of face and and how it had come into English. Uh, And then from there, I became interested more broadly in the question of how do different concepts relating to China evolve over time? And then the next thing I knew, I was writing a book on the project. Um, So that's kind of, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. No, thank you for that introduction. Um, I think it's therefore no surprise that one of the four key concepts you look at in the book is, of course, face. Um, But there are three others. So given that you've told us the origin story of that section, can you briefly tell us what the other three are and kind of how they came to be the ones you investigate? Sure. So the other three are filial piety, feng shui, which is also sometimes called geomancy in English, and then guanxi, uh, which is variously translated as connections, networking, um, pulling strings, things like that. Um, so, uh, and then along with face. So the way I decided the four concepts was um, I wanted them all to be related to China, uh, first of all. Um, I wanted them all to be words that had changed over time 
in both languages and i wanted to i wanted to make sure that they were cases where i could find evidence that those changes were sometimes due to what was happening in the other language so i was interested in in how concepts evolve through a sort of dialogue in translation between two different cultures um so I mean, there's been lots of studies done where somebody says, oh, you have a concept in language A, and then it gets translated into language B, and in the transition process, maybe it gets changed. And you know, so in language B, it means something slightly different. But you don't get a lot of examples uh, before my book of a process where the concept goes back and forth between the two languages, and in that kind of back and forth between the two languages then gradually changes in both directions. Um, so that's what I was um, really interested in. Um, <clears throat> so there are lots of concepts that are related to China that uh, I might have chosen instead, but these were the ones that I felt best fit these criteria, because uh, that was one of the main things I was interested in exploring uh, in mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's useful to kind of have that framework as we now move to discussing those terms in more detail. So um, I'd like to start with filial piety, not really for any particular reason, I suppose, but let's let's start there. So taking us kind of back before the terms um, intertwine and influence each other, to what extent were the sort of England English concepts of filial piety and the Chinese concepts of filial piety were they at all similar before they came into contact with each other? Yeah, so I think there's uh, there's a good reason why the Jesuits, uh, the Jesuit missionaries, uh, who were the first ones to uh, equate the two words "xiao" uh, in Chinese and filial piety, because they were using Latin, um, but filial piety in English comes from Latin, so it's <clears throat> um, broadly derived from there. <clears throat> they saw a close relationship between the two terms, and in fact, for them, the equation of filial piety and "xiao" was completely unproblematic, uh, and so they don't really, uh, in their writings, say much of anything about how the two are different. So um, at that time period, in both cultures, uh, it's mainly a father-son relation. So uh, we're talking in, in both societies uh, about a patriarchal structure. Um, both societies viewed filial piety as being a universal. In other words, they felt that it was natural for all human beings to feel filial piety toward their parents. <clears throat> Uh, filial piety in both societies was thought of as a virtue uh, in basically all cases. Uh, and although it is rooted in biology, uh, as I mentioned, it's also supported by the culture and the concept of family in both cases. Um, filial piety, the word piety uh, is closely related to the word duty in English. In fact, filial duty is one of the other main translations of the term xiao in English uh, up to the 19th century. So there's more emphasis on duty and respect towards one's parents, uh, not so much an emotional bond. So it's not so much that you love your parents, it's that you respect them. And because you respect them, you obey them. <clears throat> uh, and in both cases, it also has sort of uh, what I call spillover effects in other areas. So, for example, uh, being a filial son also means that you are probably likely to be a dutiful subject to your king. So if you're a good son, then you're also going to be a good subject. If you're a bad son, then you may be a bad subject. So there's this idea that um, virtue <clears throat> is somehow, um, these virtues are somehow linked or related. Uh, but then of course, there are also some differences. So in China, um, filiopiety filial piety is linked to ancestor worship uh, and through Confucianism to more to political loyalty. So there's sometimes conflict with uh, religious thought in China, uh, most importantly, Taoism and Buddhism. So Buddhism, you have the idea of um, leaving the family, <clears throat> right? Sort of renouncing the, the world and worldly cares. And then you, uh, reject your birth name and you take a 
uh, another name when you join the Buddhist clergy. So you are cutting yourself off from the family uh, and obviously not marrying and having children. And in Chinese uh, philosophy, that's one of the three big sins. So Mengzi says, uh, there are three ways of being unfilial. And of the three, the worst is not to have children. <clears throat> so because of its links with ancestor worship and the idea of continuing the family line, there are conflicts between Buddhism and also Taoism uh, and filial piety. But in Europe, um, it, it's intimately linked to Christianity because in Christianity, people refer to God as our Holy Father. <clears throat> so this, you have this uh, homology of uh son to father, person to God. Uh, and so there isn't, you, you don't get this tension between religious thought and filial piety that you get in the Chinese context. Um, also in China, they go to great lengths to try to say that there are never um, conflicts between filial piety and loyalty to the ruler. Whereas, in fact, if you look at the historical record, there are lots of times when there are conflicts of interest between somebody having to choose whether to be a filial son or to be a loyal subject to the king, uh, right? When, when the king tells you to do something and it's against the interests of your family, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> this doesn't really happen in Europe. Instead, what happens is filial piety is subordinated to loyalty to the ruler. Um, starting with the writing of Hobbes, uh, who who sees it as something that, that the because of the social contract, once you are part of a polity, your allegiance to the ruler trumps your allegiance to your family members, um, because everybody in the in the kingdom owes their allegiance to the king, and so that's primary. So there are, I mean, it's broadly similar, but then if you kind of look in the, into the into the details, there are uh, some important differences. Mm. Yeah, no, very much some key differences, particularly in terms of, you know, if you're faced with a particular situation, what are you meant to be doing? There's some there's some different outcomes there with what you've explained to us. So that's a very helpful uh, foundation to then allow me to ask how that changed, um, and especially how the English concept changed as the Chinese version became more understood by Anglo-American readers? Oh, sure. So um, it's, I mean, it's hard to say necessarily um, why all the time, but um, if you look uh, at the way that the word filial piety is used in English over time, there is a sense from the 16th to the 19th century, the filial piety kind of loses its value. Um, and this happens at the same time that the term filial piety is more and more closely related to China and the Chinese. So in other words, you have uh, a higher and higher percentage of uses of the word of filial piety are used in the context of China and less and less in the context of, say, England or France or other European countries. And at the same time, we start to get the sense that filial piety in English is not always a good thing. And curiously, this is the mo it's most obvious if we look at romances and plays. Um, so romances and plays often revolve around a love plot. And one of the most common love plots is a conflict between duty to your parents and love for another person, right? So a man and a woman fall in love, but their parents don't uh, approve. So what's going to happen? And what happens more and more in, uh, in plays and in, in, in novels in English and in French and other uh, languages in Europe is that the love interest wins out over the family. Sometimes that's delayed. So in other words, sometimes what happens is that the parents die of natural causes. And then once the parents die, the lovers are then free to get married and live happily ever after. But other times there's actual, actual conflict. Um, so filial piety slowly becomes a sort of what I call a backward looking virtue, that it's looking back to the past, to the people that came before you and not forward into the future. 
right? It's the people who are dying who are holding you back from, from being able to get married and live happily ever after. Um, so, and then at the same time, more and more, the particular term filial piety is only being used uh, in the context of China, where it's then linked to a sense of excess. So in the early period, when the Chinese are, are um, said to be filial, uh, it's a good thing. And in fact, there are early records from the 16th, 17th century where people are advised that we can look at the Chinese as exemplars of filial piety. So in other words, we could learn from them. But by the late 18th or early 19th century, this has been flipped on its head. And yes, the Chinese are still sort of ex not exemplary anymore, but extremists or fanatics. And so therefore, it's become dangerous to follow their example because they will lead you astray and then you will get into trouble. <clears throat> um, and then this is linked up with, in the 19th and the early 20th century, a whole discussion about uh, China and whether or not China is modernizing. Um, and the idea is that filial piety then is holding the Chinese back from embracing Western modernity, because instead of being looking to the forward, they're still looking to the past. Mm. I think I'm going to stop there. Yeah, no, an absolutely yeah. fascinating um, change. So thank you for taking us through that influence. Um, is there anything further we want to say about kind of filial piety and its change in meaning, or should we move on to the next term? Well, so what's uh, what's interesting, uh, I think, at the moment is what's happening. You know, what's happening now with filial piety in China, uh, because filial piety in the early twentieth century, uh, during the May Fourth Movement, and then uh, after nineteen forty nine with the Chinese Communist Party, uh, is very much denounced. And you know, this is a futile concept, and it's a bad thing, and so on and so forth. Um, and nobody is talking about Confucius and Confucianism up until the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, Confucian, Confucianism makes a comeback in China. Um, and we now have all over the world, the Chinese government establishing, establishing Confucian institutes that are supposed to be sort of the, um, the equivalent of something like the Goethe Institute. Right, which is to kind of spread German culture abroad. So the Confucian institutes are being established in, in, in many different countries, and there's quite a lot of money put into them to uh, promote the study of Chinese language, to promote the study of Chinese culture, to foster um, intercultural exchange, you know, these kinds of things. But the fact that they, they call them Confucian Institutes, I mean, I have to say that I think that Mao Zedong must be rolling in his grave at the idea that, that Confucius has now been rehabilitated in this way. And um, with that rehabil rehabilitation of Confucianism, we have also seen the rehabilitation of filial piety as a virtue in China. And it's, but it's no longer focused on ancestor worship. So the, the earliest, the, the very earliest meaning of filial piety that we can tell from the pictographs, from the, from the very early um, uh, writing on oracle bones and on bronze vessels, it's, it's not about serving your parents. It's about offering uh, gifts to the dead, so to your, to your deceased ancestors. So it sacrifices. Um, but in modern day China, when they talk about filial piety, what it's really about is taking care of your parents when they get old. So it's about the government retreating from the role of providing social services to the elderly and using the concept of filial piety to encourage people to take up that role themselves, to take on the burden of taking care of the elderly, because that is then therefore, according to the Chinese government, an expression of filial piety. So this resuscitation of filial piety in China is not the same thing that it used to be. Um, and in my mind, is 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 it's a bit cynical, really, that it's mm -hmm. um, that it's being used in this way. 
Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that drawing that line between kind of what does this allow government to be able to do uh, really helps us understand kind of the implications of the meanings of these terms. So thank you for mm. adding that on to our discussion. Um, moving, however, to the next term, let's talk about feng shui. And can you take us through kind of, again, going back into history first and then moving forward, what were the early British conceptions of the Chinese term feng shui? And why were kind of, at least to me, reading this one compared to the other sections of the book, it really seemed like there were some early texts in the British tradition that kind of created a conception. And that conception really stuck, um, maybe more than some of the other ones for a long period of time. So can you tell us kind of what these conceptions were and, and why they were so formative in the Western understanding? Sure. Uh, so feng shui, actually, I think of the four terms in the book, feng shui might be my favorite um, mm. for uh, various reasons. But so feng shui starts off um, being conceived of primarily as superstition. Um, and in the book, I talk uh, quite a bit. I don't really want to go into it maybe at length for the podcast because it gets a bit technical, but there's a, there's a discourse that emerges in the 19th century that sort of between concepts of superstition and magic, science and technology and religion. And so if you think of a sort of a triangle here between those three concepts, religion, superstition, and science, uh, feng shui gets stuck over with the superstition, um, which puts it in opposition to both religion and science, um, which are then uh, sort of the, the feng shui is kind of defined by its position in this triangle because it's the opposite of science and it's also at the same time the opposite of religion. Uh, by and when we say religion in the 19th century in, in Victorian England, we're talking about Christianity. So feng shui is. Uh, esoteric, it's mysterious, it's irrational, it's arbitrary. The feng shui masters are portrayed as deceitful or ignorant. Uh, feng shui is portrayed as both ineffective and then in some cases weirdly effective when there's a moral and the moral supports the British side, <laughs> uh, but so more often ineffective. So the, one of the early stories about feng shui that's told is of a local official who was unhappy about a church that was built um, near his residence. And so he erected another structure to combat the, the feng shui of the, of the bad feng shui of the, of the church steeple. But then despite the fact that he erected that gate, the local official shortly later shortly after that died of some kind of mysterious illness. And so this, this is an example that the British side is, you know, that that his that feng shui is a bunch of baloney because, you know, this official claimed to understand feng shui, but then he couldn't do anything to save himself. Um, it's linked to, um, I mean, so it really, for, for a long time, I think the British have a hard time understanding it. And so it is, as I said, they really emphasize that it is mysterious, irrational, and arbitrary uh, because they don't they they don't understand how it works. Um, and so they variously link they liken it to astronomy, uh, 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 astronomy and astrology. Sorry, um, they also link it to the concepts of miasma and um, bad air. So the British were um, sort of obsessed with miasmas as things that caused illness in the 19th century. They also link it to magnetism because in, in feng shui, you would talk about uh, lines of force running through the earth and they equated these with, with magnetic, the magnetic field of the earth. Um, they also related to genie, so that's bringing in sort of Middle Eastern uh, mythology uh, as a as a as another way of understanding it, and then also they understood it in terms of aesthetics. So, in other words, for a lot of the British, they understood this as uh, feng shui as a way to try to make a site pleasing to the eye. Um, and to the ears, right? So that if you arrange things according to feng shui, then your house will have a nice view 
or your the grave of your ancestors will have a nice view. Um, I just realized that maybe feng shui is not as commonly understood as filial piety. So, I mean, I should probably just say two words about what it is. <laughs> um, so feng shui is the belief that um, there are correspondences between the earth, the human plane, and the astral plane, and the physical arrangements of objects on the earthen plane can influence the correspondence between these things, and therefore that will influence what happens to you in your life. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of trying to improve your situation. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you have an enemy, to try to attack an enemy by destroying the feng shui of their house. And in fact, the Chinese, uh, the, the successive Chinese governments, uh, one of the things that they would do if there was a rebellion is that they would go and they would dig up the graves or destroy the graves of the ancestors of the of the rebels because there was thought to be a link between uh, what, the way that one's ancestors were buried and one's family's fortune. So they would try to destroy the graves to therefore destroy the rebellion. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this link, there's this, again, there's this link to ancestor worship. And so it's, it's also in a sense linked to uh, filial piety. Mm. And it's also linked to filial piety in the sense that it's seen to be holding the Chinese back again from embracing Western modernity. And this could be seen quite literally because feng shui was used again and again as a reason to refuse to um, let allow mining in a region to erect telegraph lines or to build railroads through areas. And so these were often um, attacked by, uh, sometimes they were described as mobs. They might've actually been organized groups that would um, tear up such works in, in a location because they would claim that the work would destroy the feng shui of the locality. Mm-hmm. Thank you for adding that on. I think it helps us understand kind of what it actually is and and, and also then put into better context um, the sort of British interpretations, confusions, I suppose, that you've explained to us as well. Moving then to kind of the back and forth translations um, between English and Chinese and understanding the impacts that that have had, can you help us understand some of the key changes that feng shui has gone through if we move to sort of mid-19th century up until now, I suppose, um, with concepts of feng shui going back and forth between the languages? Sure. So um, in in China, before the 19th century, there wasn't a lot of discussion about feng shui. So filial piety, you know, there everybody who is anybody writes about filial piety in Chinese. Um, and one of the big problems that I had with my book is that I had too much material on filial piety, uh, and had to I had to think of ways to sort of cut down to manageable proportions. But with feng shui, there's not a lot of extended discussions of it. You do get sort of kind of off-the-cuff remarks about feng shui being superstition, actually also by Chinese writers. But then you also get lots of tales of uh, feng shui where it's shown to be efficacious. Um, So, but I mean, but not a lot of attention on it. But the British and the Americans have, you know, have this very strong reaction to feng shui, partly because it is used by the locals to interfere with things like telegraphs and mining and railroads, these things that the, that the Westerners are trying to do. Um, so they see it as a real problem. And that discourse in English about feng shui as a superstition and, and as something that is really, again, holding China back from modernity, that comes into China in the early 20th century with the May 4th movement. Um, and then feng shui, we, we suddenly get a lot more denunciations of feng shui in very strongly worded in in Chinese, um, but and then in English it, the meaning doesn't really change very much until the 1960s or the 1970s, and you we, there's this kind of slow building of interest in feng shui. In uh, there's some anthropological studies that are done where people talk about 
the importance of feng shui in a kind of neutral manner. They just sort of tried to describe it rather than labeling it as superstition. And then there are these two women who write books about feng shui in the 80s uh, in English that really put feng shui on the map. Uh, and so one of them it was a writer who had ties to the New York Times, and she had lived in Hong Kong for a while. Uh, Hong Kong is a um, was a region where, for a long time, feng shui was very important, um, partly because it was used by the locals as a way of resisting British colonial power. Uh, and so actually, to this day, the Hong Kong government has a feng shui uh, fund. And whenever there are public works near a village in the new territories, the village can sue the government and get money from the feng shui fund because the, if they can prove that the that the works the public works are damaging the feng shui of the village, so it is still actually something that is is has a legal standing in Hong Kong. Uh, so she comes to Hong Kong. She she she's here for a few years. She studies under a feng shui master. She claims. Then she goes back to New York and she writes a book. And uh, because she has links to the New York Times, it gets reviewed in the New York Times and becomes a bestseller. And at the same time, there's a woman in Malaysia who writes a book, I think either the year before or the year after, or the year after I can't remember now. Uh, and that gets a lot of attention in England. So um, you have these two books that come out, and then there's a sort of avalanche of writings about feng shui. And by the late 1990s in English, there are over 100 books new books being published each year on the concept of feng shui, uh, which is kind of crazy. And they're all quite positive. Um, and the concept of feng shui in English is very different from what uh, I've been talking about uh, in, in China. So there's basically almost no mention of the graves of the ancestors being involved in feng shui. Right. So that that's actually one of the key points in the uh, in the Chinese concept that the feng shui of not just your home but also the home of your ancestors is an important uh, issue for you and can influence the feng shui of of, of you know your great great grandparents' graves can influence your fortune today. Uh, so that's completely gone. So there's no discussion in English really about this to uh, to speak of. It's all about the present. It's not about the past. It's very much focused on family dwellings first and foremost, and um, the workplace, and that's a big shift. So um, you don't really see discussions of uh, arranging the feng shui of your place of work in Chinese. But that's a big part of the discussion in English. So those are the two places, of course, that most Americans and most British people spend a lot of their times, where they live and where they work. Mm. Those two places then get all the attention. Um, mm. And there's nothing really about public buildings, whereas traditionally in China, there's, there's a lot of discussion about how you have feng shui not of just of individuals, but also of communities. So a mm. village or a, or a clan group would be concerned about things like the, the local temple, where the local temple is located, how it's situated, because the feng shui of the temple would then influence whether the town was prosperous or not, whether the crops would be good, things like that. Um, so in English, though, you don't get it any kind of discussion about public buildings, really. It's still about wealth and success. So it's still about, you know, if you do these things, if you have the right feng shui, then you'll be wealthy and you'll be successful. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, the English concept of feng shui spends a lot of time talking about romance, love, and happiness. Mm. And this is, again, a big shift because that's not at all on the radar in Chinese for the idea of uh, feng shui. Feng shui in Chinese, if when it as touches upon the family, they're concerned about often um, having good feng shui so that your wife will be able to get pregnant and have lots of children, and preferably boys. Uh, and again, that in English basically disappears. There's very little about feng shui in English relating to childbirth uh, and, and having children. 
Uh, there's a great focus on interior spaces. I think that's linked to the fact that many individuals in uh, Europe and America live in flats or in, in England, maybe in row houses where you don't necessarily have very much control over the outer shell of the building that you live in. You only have control over the way the interior space is arranged, right? So if you live in an apartment, your apartment complex you don't get to change the facade of the building. That's done by a management company, right? So mm -hmm. all focused on interior spaces. Uh, it's urban rather than rural. Mm -hmm. And I think possibly most importantly is that the English texts about feng shui emphasize that it is something that is easy to do and that you can do by yourself. So mm -hmm. a lot of the feng shui books are essentially self-help books. Right? It's like how to improve your life by using feng shui in six easy steps or something like that. Mm -hmm. And in China, feng shui is something that is practiced by professional uh, professional men who carry, uh, who have um, manuals that they study for years under a master, and that uh, if you show the manual to a layperson, they can't make any, you know, they can't make any sense out of the, the manual because they're mm -hmm. not and how to use it. But these are, you know, sort of uh, being presented as easy to use, you know, like I said, you know, like three easy steps, six easy steps. Right. You know. Yeah. No, like a self-help, as you said, the feng shui for dummies type thing. Yeah. And then finally, it's, it's linked to a lot of new age beliefs. So uh, we see uh, references to Wiccan practices, to crystals, tarot cards, aromatherapy, Reiki, palmistry, meditation, dowsing, chakra. I mean, like all of mm -hmm. these kind of get mixed up together and um, are referenced in books about feng shui in English. Uh, so it's it, it's it's a really quite a radical shift of the notion, mm -hmm. and that radical shift has now been sort of re-imported into China in urban spaces, so in cities. Um, and I think again, it's because the living situation of somebody in a city like Shanghai is very similar to the living situation of somebody in New York. You're living in a flat. You don't have control over the building that you live in, except for the interior space. Your ancestral grave is back in a village 800 miles away, and you have no control over that because you're not there. So it is very much focused on your work, your living space, and then also your workspace. So we have in China today sort of two competing visions of feng shui or, or practices of feng shui, one still in the countryside, which is much more traditional, and then one that is practiced often in the city by people that is very similar to the types of manuals written in English. Um, and we I've, we now see publication of feng shui manuals for, that are sort of self-help books in Chinese uh, available on the market uh, as well. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, such a radical shift, as you said, and then to see it get translated back um, to me, I think perhaps one of the clearest examples in the book of this influence of uh, translation back and forth having such an impact. So thank you for explaining that one to us. However, mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to, as as we've both kind of mentioned, we can't get into all of the technical details um, <laughs> of each of the concepts here. So I will move us on to the third um, of the terms in the book, the concept of face, which you mentioned at the beginning kind of is what spurred you to pursue this project initially. Um, again, with the caveat that unfortunately we can't go into everything you say about face uh, in this context, but intrigued listeners should definitely read the book to get all of it. I would like to ask you about one aspect of it, um, which is the devaluation of the term in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and this seems to, you talk about this in the book, happening very much in English and then in Chinese. And I'm interested in kind of why did this happen in this time period and why in this order between the languages? Okay. So I think in that sense, it's similar to what happens with uh, both filial piety and feng shui, that the devaluation of it comes in that language first, and then it gets carried over into uh, Chinese. Um, 
honestly, the concept of face in English never has really positive connotations. Um, so the earliest examples of it are uh, found in descriptions of the way that Chinese speakers of English um, speak in English. So it's, it's represented as part of uh, Pidgin English. So Pidgin English emerges in the treaty ports in the late 18th and early 19th century uh, when uh, the Chinese government actually for, forbids foreigners from learning Chinese. So the British are not allowed to learn Chinese, and therefore they must rely upon these uh, interpreters um, who learn a kind of Pidgin English that they use to uh, communicate with the British. And the, and the phrase to save, uh, to lose face, comes into English in this Pidgin English because the, the, these Chinese traders are using the term and the British pick up on it. And they always put it in quotation marks um, and, and always attribute it to Chinese speakers. Um, and it's, uh, it has, you know, they, they explain the meaning um, often when they use it in these contexts. And at the beginning, it's not terribly negative, but it's, again, it's not really positive. It's just, oh, this is this funny way that the Chinese have of saying, you know, to be concerned about appearances or something like that. Um, but again, as the 19th century wears on, China's reputation in England and in America suffers. Right. So after the first Opium War, and then especially after the second Opium War, um, the British and the and the American opinion of the Chinese reaches you know really low point. Uh, in America, we have the uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. So you know the Chinese are not allowed to uh, emigrate, or when the the Chinese workers who that are allowed to come over to California are coming over on contract, they're not allowed to bring. Uh, their wives, so it's only men. They come over as workers on fixed contract, and then they're supposed to leave, right? Um, so we have this sort of really negative opinion of the Chinese, and because the phrase "to lose face" is borrowed from Chinese and is portrayed as something that the Chinese say, it also then becomes very negative, um, and it uh, becomes uh, it, it slowly becomes more widely known, mainly through the writing of the missionaries uh, in the late 19th century, and especially Arthur Smith, whose book uh, Chinese Characteristics in the 1890s uh, is a bestseller. And the first chapter of the book is face. Uh, and he really emphasizes this idea that the Chinese uh, have this concept of face, and that is is a sort of complete divorcing of reality from what they're talking about. So for, for, for Smith, when he says that the Chinese are concerned with face, it's basically that they lie in the face of the truth, like even when it's blatantly obviously to everybody around that what they're saying is false, they still lie to protect their face. Right. And so, the, and so he 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 gets into this thing about how how obsessed. So again, this idea of excess, how obsessed the Chinese are with appearances, um, and and face is the the face is the face of the Chinese concept of of appearances. Mm -hmm. And then again, in the early twentieth century, the May Fourth intellectuals who are uh, unhappy about the Chinese. Uh, place in the world and what's going on with the Chinese government uh, and the unequal treaties. And then, I mean, it's touched off by the Treaty of Versailles, where the Chinese feel that at the end of World War I, they get the short end of the stick. Um, they really attack uh, everything that is seen as traditional. And especially, uh, you know, there are certain things that, that really attract their attention. And one of them is this this concept of face. Uh, and so then you have lots of people writing uh, very polemical works about this. And I, I mentioned uh, Lin Yutang, who writes both in English and in Chinese on the concept. Um, and he, you know, he really rails on about the fact that uh, the Chinese are completely ridiculous. And he uh, and and he gives an example of a general who um, wanted to bring extra luggage on a plane 
and the pilot, you know, we're talking about a small plane now, and the pilot's like, well, you know, we don't really have the, <laughs> if it's a small plane, we don't really have the capacity, you know, but the general insists on 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 them uh, giving him face by allowing him to bring extra luggage, and then the plane almost crashes because it's it's overloaded. Um, so you get more and more of these kinds of stories circulating in Chinese, and you have you know these sort of campaigns uh, almost to stop paying attention to uh, face or mianzi as it's called in, in Chinese, and to um, you know tell, just you know speak the plain unvarnished truth and 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 damn the consequences. Hmm. Very interesting transition there. Um, moving then to our final concept, our fourth concept, um, Guanxi, I'd love to ask you about kind of a place where we might not expect to think about Guanxi or see Guanxi. Um, because obviously, I mean, the term itself, right, we, we still in English use the Chinese term in a lot of cases. Um, we kind of think of it as being a thing inherent in the Chinese system of government, of politics, of economics. But you talk about in the book that we can also see Guanxi in the rise of the civil service in Great Britain and in the United States. So can you take us to perhaps this unexpected location of Guanxi? Sure. Uh, so I think that this is probably the most controversial argument that I make in the book. Um, so essentially what I see happening is it's not so much that Guanxi is in the civil service, but that the concern with Guanxi emerges out of the discussion of adopting a civil service in Great Britain and the United States as a way of combating Guanxi, among other things. So, I mean, for example, in the 17th, uh, 18th century in Britain, you have a social system in which the, the royal family, the crown, and the aristocracy have quite a lot of power to appoint young men to positions in the church, in the army, and uh, in, in, in the civil service. Um, among other uh, spheres of employment. So, and we have, you know, a variety of terms, patronage, gift, living, uh, and the slightly more technical term, preferment. Um, and this is, you know, considered to be completely normal and is not, you know, stigmatized. It's just, that's the way it works. If you're an aristocrat, then you have the power to appoint the local vicar. Um, and so you, if you have a nephew who, you know, he's the third son, so he's not going to inherit any land and, you know, the family doesn't have enough money to pay for him to go into the army, then they, you give him a, a living at the vicarage and he becomes, you know, the local vicar or something like that. Um, and we see this in, for example, the, the novels of Jane Austen. So in my book, I, I actually give examples from two of Jane Austen's novels where important points in the plot turn around the power of preferment um, and therefore the appointment uh, to um, these positions by the aristocracy. But this system then in the, in the late 18th and the early 19th century is gradually undermined, partly because we get reports about the Chinese civil service. Um, and we get the reports about the fact that the, the way that the Chinese pick people for the civil service is through an examination that is open basically to anybody, and that even some poor, obscure person from a, you know, a far-off province, if they study hard enough and they're you know, intelligent enough, they can pass the exams and then they can become an official uh, in the Chinese government, which in pre-modern China was basically the best kind of job you could get. Um, and it was extremely competitive. So reports of that filter back into Europe through first through again the Jesuits, um, and then later writers in in different languages. And this idea then that some kind of a examination system would be a better way of choosing who gets certain jobs rather than patronage emerges. Um, it's a long process. Uh, the people who have the power of patronage obviously are unhappy about the idea of losing it, and they fight a long rearguard action in parliament 
uh, in the 19th century. So it takes a long time, but eventually the British establish the, the civil surface examinations. Uh, they start first with experimenting on a sort of small scale in the, um, I think it's in the, in, in the Indian civil, uh, civil service. So, you know, that you, you've got the British are getting more and more control of, of parts of India and they need people to administer it. They start to use an examination system to choose people who will go out uh, and to be part of that uh, civil service. And then later, it, that's, that system, after it's been tested in the colonies, is eventually used for civil service posts in the UK itself. Um, but so during this discussion about this and, and this, this gradual process whereby patronage becomes less and less important because more and more jobs are being filled through uh, examinations, then the I, this is linked with the idea that somehow this, you know, this idea of, okay, so I know person, I have some kind of connection, private connection with person X. And so I'm going to give person X the job rather than somebody else, because why should I give it to a stranger when I could give it to a friend kind of thing? So this becomes viewed as a, a no-no. Um, and if, for example, in, um, I don't know if you've ever used Ngram, which is by Google. So Ngram, looks at the um, popularity of words, we can say, over time, right? So it, all the books that Google has uh, digitized, it's scanned through them and it's identified words in them. And then it basically counts, okay, so in, 19, in 1820, what percentage of the words in all the books that Google has are patronage and what percent are um I don't know, uh, favoritism or something else. So if we look at the terms that are either neutral or slightly positive, like preferment and patronage, the use of those terms declines in, this, in the 19th century. And at the same time, words like nepotism, jobbery, graft, spoil system, and favoritism uh, increase, uh, in some cases quite dramatically. So we have this, there they're essentially talking about the same thing. They're talking about somebody getting a job because you have a connection with somebody else. But the terms that are being used are going from terms with neutral or positive connotations to terms with, in some cases, quite negative connotations. Hmm. Um, and now I've gotten lost in what I was trying to say. <laughs> well, that's fine, because I've, I've got a kind of follow-up question uh, that I'd love to ask, given what you've just explained to us. Um, that whole transition of going from a preferment, a patronage system to an examination system, in -hmm. some ways inspired by the Chinese example, is fascinating, but then also kind of, how then does it go the other way, right? How does the idea of China is the model, and here's what we want to follow, to China's model then becoming sort of villainous and backwards um, and problematic as seen through European or American eyes? How does it go from the top to the bottom? Yeah, okay. So thank you for guiding me back to the point with that question, that follow-up question. Um, So what happens is the British start to say, it's not so much that they say that the Chinese civil service is... um, inherently corrupt but what they say is that the chinese although in th- in theory came up with a good idea but they're unable to put it into practice so they say that you know okay so they're supposed to have this system of civil service examinations and they're supposed to have this in place and that in place to prevent fraud and corruption blah, blah, blah. but in fact what we see, and that we see is very important, uh, what we see, the British who are now traveling around in China, especially after the Second Opium War, is that corruption and nepotism are rife everywhere in the country. So, um, you know, in the early 19th century, the British are still confined to the port of um, Guangzhou. So they're only allowed to trade in that one place. They're only allowed to be there during the trading season. And when the ships leave, all of the British are supposed to leave Guangzhou. And they all, they, so there's this sort of annual migration between Guangzhou and Macau. So the British who want to stay in the region 
when the ships are not training, have to go to Macau and live in Macau for five or six months until the next group of ships arrive from England. And then they go back to Guangzhou and they do the training and then leave again. Anyway, but so the British in the early 19th century don't have a lot of interaction with Chinese outside of those interpreters that I mentioned. Um, that they're called linguists at the at the time, not interpreters, but they're essentially interpreters, sort of a mix of interpreters and, and businessmen. Um, but then after the first Opium War, some uh, additional ports are opened up, and then after, especially after the second Opium War, uh, foreigners start traveling in China in greater and greater numbers and observing the Chinese in in different areas, and a lot of the reports that they sent back. To Britain are quite negative, uh, and this is especially true of the missionaries. So the Protestant missionaries who arrive um, have, I would have to say, a fairly biased viewpoint because, of course, these people are heathens and living in darkness and sin because they don't know Jesus Christ. So they are disposed to, of course, see the worst uh, of what is in front of them. So we get more and more um, reports coming back that the Chinese are corrupt, that you know that the justice system doesn't work, that um, examiners are bribed, that favors you know that that degrees are sold. Um, you know, so like if you have enough money, you can just buy a degree. You don't even have to take the exam. Um, and so all of this then, what that what happens is that the, the, the British see the Chinese basically as having failed at implementing a civil service uh, system, whereas the British see themselves as having succeeded in doing that. So it's this question of the relationship between the theoretical model and then that, what happens in actuality that uh, that is mm. uh, to blame. Mm. No, that, that that's a very important um distinction to draw and help us understand how that could change. So thank you for explaining that to us. If we look um, at the four concepts and the book kind of overall, rather than one by one, as we've been doing, if we take it more big picture, I suppose, mm-hmm. what are some of your key takeaways from having done this comparison and analyzing their evolutions over time? Hmm. Okay. So uh, I'd say the first and the most important conclusion that I drew is that how concepts change over time is very complicated <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and, it, and varies quite a lot. So I would say that I, would, I, I see, I don't want to say quite randomness, but maybe the accidents of history um, occurring quite, uh, quite frequently. So for example, um, I mean, I find it fascinating that you have these two cultures that are so different, and yet they do exert this mutual influence on each other in certain key areas. Um, and this is true for concepts like filial piety that exist independently already in the two cultures, as well as for concepts that are borrowed, like face or feng shui or guanxi. Um, and then, but on the other hand, it's also true that. In some cases, it seems that stereotypes, once they are established, can really endure. So, the, for example, the stereotype that the Chinese are exemplars of filial piety, you know, exists right down to today. Even though, I mean, honestly, I would say that I don't think that Chinese people today are necessarily any more filial than people in other cultures. Um, still, there there is that idea that this is true. And so I think that when people look at Chinese and look at Chinese culture, they tend to see it because they're looking for it, right? So, I mean, as with many things, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily true that they are, uh, that, that, that that's so today, which is one of the reasons why the Chinese government has had to have campaigns promoting filial piety, because precisely the, the Chinese are not practicing filial piety the way that the Chinese government would like them to, because they're they're not actually necessarily especially filial. Um, but then you also have examples like feng shui where the meaning is sort of completely overturned 
Um, so especially in English, you know, that it goes, we have like a century, a century and a half, essentially, of, you know, feng shui being this really negative um, superstition that, you know, it's it's just dumb, it's stupid, it's irrational, blah, blah, blah. and then in the 70s, 80s, suddenly that turns around and, you know, even somebody like my sister, who speaks no Chinese, has never been to China, has no interest in China, but she can tell me that her neighbor, when they, she said, oh, one day, just a couple of years ago, my my neighbor had his, his wall fixed. I had it, I, he said, and she said, I think it has something to do with the feng shui. And I just like, what? You're like, why is my sister talking about feng shui, you know, her neighbor using feng shui? Um, and in a completely positive way, right? Um, so that you, you, you get things like that. Um, you also get periods of, I think, sort of relative calm where there isn't a lot of change. And then you get periods where things change very rapidly. Um, So for the Anglo-American side, it's more the 19th century where a lot of the change happens. And it's mainly in a negative direction. And then for China, it's the early 20th century uh, after, like I said, basically after World War One. so you have these, you know, sort of periods of intense shifting, and then there are other times within things, decades will go by, and it seems that like nothing has changed at all. Um, then also, I mean, for me, it's interesting that all of these concepts are circulating both in academic and popular discourse. Um, and this is one of the things that uh, Raymond, Raymond Williams wrote a book, I think it was in the 1970s, called, um, I think it's called Key Concepts. Oh gosh, I have to, I should have checked the title before this interview. But um, in his introduction, he talks about the fact that he chose the terms that he chose precisely because they were important both in popular discourse and in academic discourse. So that he wasn't interested in terms that were only being used by academics, and he wasn't interested in terms that are only being used sort of in a popular sense. He was interested in words that were, you know, operating on both levels. And that's also true of all of these concepts um, in my book. Um, uh, The other thing that I hope that people will get from reading my book is the idea that there is this tendency to want to believe that if you understand a restricted number of keywords, then you can understand another culture. But I hope that when you finish reading my book, you'll understand that that's not necessarily true uh, and that it's more complicated than that. Um, The internet is full of web pages that are advertising uh, seminars that, you know, like, oh, you want to do business with China, then, you know, spend three hours with us and we will, under- you know, we will unlock the secrets of Chinese culture through a discussion of five words or something like that. And then you'll be able to go to China and do business and become a millionaire. Um, and I look at those and I just think, wow, you know, there are real rubes out there. Um, so that's, uh, that was one of the things that I hadn't really been thinking about when I started the book, but certainly by the time I was finished with the book, that is one of the things I hope that people take away with them. Yeah. Um, no, and I, th- I think that's a that's a good kind of takeaway to end on, um, the idea that it's complicated and there's a lot more <laughs> to this than we might think. So such a great thing to have you come on the podcast and tell us obviously some about it, the book having even more detail um, and leaving me with really only one final question, if you don't mind. This book, as you described at the beginning, very much builds off of your previous work and longstanding interests. Is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about face or feng shui that you'd like to uh, preview for us? Uh, So, I mean, for each of the chapters, most of the chapters are 20, 25,000 words long. So I've pretty much exhausted what I have to say about most of these concepts, I think. Um, one of the things that I, I mean, we haven't really talked about the methodology that I use to do my research. Um, but one of the things that I was working on as I was writing this book was moving into the field of digital humanities. So this is using digital methods to try to investigate humanities topics. Uh, in this case, 
how to understand translation. Um, and so I think one of the reasons I was, I said that feng shui was my favorite, uh, one of my favorites in, in the book was because one of the things that I did was I used a, a, a particular type of a corpus tool to come up with my uh, findings about the modern meaning of feng shui. Because as I mentioned, you, there are hundreds and hundreds of books being published uh, in the last 30, 35 years about feng shui. And I had zero interest in reading even a fraction of those. Um, so what I did instead was I was able to use uh, WorldCat, which is a world network of uh, library catalogs to download the titles of all of these works. And then I put those titles into a database. And then I did a, uh, an analysis of the frequency of different words used in it. And that allowed me to tease out these different themes that were being, uh, that we find in the book and in these different books. And therefore, what concepts feng shui is linked to and how it's being used in in, in English. Um, so for my, the project that I'm working on at the moment is also using digital humanities, but it's using uh, what's called network theory to explore how translators in from the 19th century who translated from Chinese into English were socially connected. Um, so this can be uh, either uh, family connections. So often it was like uh, uh, for many of the missionaries, uh, a mission, say a person would go out as a missionary to China and then and, and would do some translation, and then their son or daughter would also do translation. So because they would be growing up in China and they would learn Chinese, but they would also obviously be learning English. So you get sort of generational translators. Um, but then you also get very dense networks of um, professional colleagues, uh, people in the civil service, for example, or I'm sorry, the, the, the foreign service, so the British foreign service or the American foreign service um, working in China, uh, many of them were involved in translation. So I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct their social networks and then through uh, reconstructing those social networks to be able to say something about uh, the translation process, uh, maybe why certain things were translated and not other things. So, you know, a question of, of how somebody's background or somebody's connections might determine what kinds of works that they translate, or even the type of the style that they adopt in their translations, maybe depending on their uh, social and, and uh, familial connections. Um, so that's, uh, that's a project that I have working on, that I'm working on now. Hmm. Um, well, that sounds and, cool. Hopefully yeah. that becomes a book and you can come back and tell us about it. I would love to. And I hope it, well, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of data entry involved to get the network information in a, in a way that you can then do this kind of analysis. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with that. Good. Well, thank you for the preview. Um, we'll definitely kind of keep an eye on that. And of course, while you're doing all of that data entry, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Conceptualizing China Through Translation, published by Manchester University Press. James, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I, I really enjoyed it.